This is Arab Talk on KPOO in San Francisco, 89.5 FM. It's Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam, And this is Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have an excellent show today. We've got Jonathan Curiel in studio with us today with a wide-ranging you know, area uh, and number of topics that we're going to talk to him about today. First, I want to just uh, talk a little bit about the horrible fires uh, just that we're having right here in Northern California and, of course, in Southern California. I was looking at the reports this morning. Absolutely devastating. 24 people have died. The number right. uh, has risen. And we are right here in San Francisco. We can smell Absolutely. the fire. You've seen some ashes on your car in, in, in Marin County. It's totally devastating. So, By the way, there's 285 people that are still missing. Yeah, hopefully they're unaccounted bad, for bad and they're okay. Yeah. So this is what's happening right here in, in the Bay Area, and we're just seeing devastation after another. Of course, this comes uh, just uh, on the heel of all these hurricanes and what happened in, in Puerto Rico, and we'll talk about that and the reaction of the government. But uh, Well, thank I, God we pulled out of the Paris Accord then. <laughs> okay. Thank God. Right, Jonathan? There, there, I mean, to, to me, there's a place for dark humor. That was the place right there. <laughs> <laughs> so th- thank you. <laughs> There needs to be a place for dark humor when we when we try to understand the fact, Jamal, that in the last month we've had three hurricanes that have been so-called once every 500-year hurricanes right after each other. We've seen climate alterations. I don't want to say the word climate change, right? Can't say that word. You know, in California, fires unlike anything else we've we've seen and and you're right, in, in Napa and Sonoma and, and in Santa Rosa, it, it really does look like a nuclear bomb. I mean, some of our listeners are, don't have access to the images, perhaps, that, that we've been able to see. But it, look, it looks like, I mean, this is what one of the residents said, if you want to know what hell looks like, come, come to Santa Rosa. Very true. So uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Jonathan Curiel right here in the house at Arab Talk at KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Jonathan is a well-known and an award-winning author and journalist. I've known Jonathan for how many years now? It's been about 15 years. I want to say 15, let's say two decades, at least two decades. 15 years. And he's the author of Al-America, Travels Through America's Arab and Youth Roots, which is very timely. I mean, this is something that uh, you've written uh, how long ago now? It was 2008. 2008. Wow. It's more topical now, I think, in some ways. I, I think it is, and in fact, I'm, try, I'm trying to do a um, um, kind of an animation follow-up with that to get it more um, on into the media in an, in the animation era, where my son, who's 16, would actually, um, um, you know, enjoy it a, a lot. I think and a lot of people would. It needs to be out there, but it's not the only thing that needs to be out there. This this show is a good thing to have out there, and essentially, we're trying to get at the same point, uh, one of the same points, and one of the bigger points is um, we need to have a further understanding of of 
Islam, you know, the Arab world, and and the way not only not only just Islam in the Arab world, but the way it connects to the United States. That's the thing because you're talking about um, the the devastation, the fires. So often, um, you know, uh, Donald Trump talked about Puerto Rico as being like you know essentially not in the United States, and it's it's this view of the other, like that's not uh, that's not us. It's out there, right. and in that sense, um, you know, understanding Islam or Islam in the Arab world is often thought of out there, not a part of the United States. And when I wrote this book ten years ago, one of the one of the um, themes was, well, no, it's it's not out there. It's actually in here. And the thing is, it's not a newcomer. It's an oldcomer. It has been, you know, Islam in the Arab world has, has been. You know, part of the United States since the United States' founding, since America's founding with Christopher Columbus. And the point, I, one of the points I make, and I think this is a very poignant point, is that Christopher Columbus um, knew Arabic. Um, he was influenced by Arab culture. The boats that he sailed on to the United States were influenced by Arab navigators. That's and, right. And in fact, um, the Spaniards uh, banned Muslims t- um, from coming to the New World, but they didn't ban Islam. They took Islamic culture with them in the form of architecture, in the form of food, in the form of language. So it was a kind of, you know, giant double standard, a di- giant hypocrisy. On the one hand, Christopher Columbus actually embraced Muslims. And one of the, you know, one of the more profound comments I found I found in my research was when Christopher Columbus said, I want to thank all the people who've helped me in my life, in my career in discovering America. I want to thank the Jews. I want to thank this. And I want to thank the Moors. And what he was essentially saying is, I want to thank Muslims for helping me discover America. That That's something that you will not find in, in most history books. No. Very few in this country. And it wasn't an aberration, um, Justin Jamal. It was part of a pattern. This is the thing I found in my book. It was part of a pattern that happened from the time of Columbus to the modern era. There's been cultural overlap and cultural indebtedness to Arab and Muslim country, uh, culture since the beginning of this country. And that's what's not known um, nearly enough in this country. Why do you think we have this problem? Because I remember talking to you when you wrote the book. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I was one of the early readers of your book. Thank uh, you for that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Again. <laughs> no, I mean, but... Uh, and you make several points, I mean, all these different connections, including, you know, the picture that you have uh, on, the, on the cover, the Shriners, uh, the, 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 the architecture, the, the, you know, all these things inter- interwoven in the American culture. And yet the average American is like, you know, looks at Islam or looks at the Arab world as totally foreign. And whenever we are... In a uh, in a state, let's say, of a conflict, what happened after 9/11, or what's happening now, they, meaning they, the strangers, are the enemy. Immediately, people even look at their own neighbors within this country and vilify them. Yeah, and, and I think I think that's a product of several things. One is um, conscious and unconscious bias, and the other thing, though, and polls have shown this. The Pew Pew organization has done polls that suggest this. Other reputable organizations have done polls that suggest this, and that is. The more people know Muslims, phys- physically, literally know Muslims in their communities, get to know them, the less um, inherently biased they are. Right. So that that's a fact. Mm-hmm. That's right. a fact. And that and that the bias actually has an inverse or converse proportion to the what they know about Muslims and, and personally Muslims they know. Maybe there's another way of saying it, Jonathan, which is there's an inverse relationship between unconscious bias and reality. Absolutely. No, I, 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 would, I would absolutely agree with you. The, the, the thing I would also say is, um, 
you know, some people say, well, it's difficult. There aren't any Muslims in my community or Arab, you know, people of Arab descent. So, you know, it's not my fault necessarily. Well, okay, so let, let's say that is the case. That's one reason I wrote my book. Right. You don't, it, it's not necessarily people. You could get to know the culture through other ways, through animation, through documentaries, through this and that. And so one of the things I did with, tried to do with my book is say, well, it's not only Arab and Muslim people who are, you know, ha- have a rich culture that you're actually benef- benefiting from. It's actually others who are influenced by the culture who you know. So, for example, there's a, there's a chapter on Elvis Presley and his love of Khalil Gibran. Now, right. and, and at the end of his life, he wanted to make a documentary or a movie about Khalil Gibran. He had the prophet on, the, on his nightstand. He was thoroughly indebted to the, the prophet right. and Gibran's writing to kind of help him deal with the world. Um, I think a lot of people knew that or know that. Um, I didn't know it to the extent that I researched it. But another profound example is, for example, the, um, the music, you know, say people like the music of the 60s, The Doors. Um, I interviewed Ray Manzarek before he passed away. He's the keyboardist. And he was saying absolutely that The Doors themselves were influenced by Arabic music. Really? Now, now when I when I interviewed him, I asked I asked him about that, and he said, "Jonathan, you're the first person in the history of the Doors to ask me that question." And the answer is, "Yeah, we have been influenced." And he wow. he, he proceeded to recount the reasons and explain why, even to the point where you go through their lyrics. And he's this is what Ray Manzarek said. There's a song where he, where um, Jim Morrison is refer- is saying Persian Night Babe, mm-hmm. and that's a reference Ray Manzarek says to Islam. Wow. wow. You're listening to the voice of uh, author and journalist Jonathan Curiel. This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. You're also uh, listening to us and watching us on, I want to welcome our viewers on Facebook Live. And many of them uh, have posted comments and uh, questions. Uh, I just, uh, one uh, comment saying uh, that uh, Christopher Columbus, uh, his navigator was an Arab. And this is a uh, comment uh, who posted this, uh, Talib Ali. I don't know where you're watching us from, Talib, but uh, that's one comment uh, that uh, was mentioned that uh, he, because I guess he was referencing that some Arabs came, I guess, with made it on the boat. Right. These would have these would have been hidden Arabs or hidden hidden. You know, they they had had to hide their religion. They, had they to hide converted. Their faith. Or they, they converted. Forced, right. Forced to, to convert. Right. And another comment here we have uh, from Iqbal saying Columbus was a double standard man, hypocrite. Hats off to Jonathan Coriel for mentioning it because uh, many want. I just want to let you know. I just want to. We want to interact with our also oh, uh, oh. Facebook uh, viewers who are watching us live. We appreciate this. I want to fast forward a little bit to what's going on now because also, uh, you know, how the media uh, has been reacting and the double. You know, talking about double standard and. Uh, you know, when we talk about, of course, the heinous uh, terrorism act, which it should be called an act of terror, what, what happened in Las Vegas. Here you have someone who shot more than 400 people, killing close to 60. He's a white guy, an average American. We keep hearing that he had no criminal trail. Most media outlets did not label this as a, an act of terrorism. I mean, for me, I know there is a philosophical debate about this, but when you kill close to 60 people and you shoot 400 people, to me, I see it as an act of, of, of uh, domestic terrorism. 
And also, people comment where they see the double standard. Had his name was, for example, Muhammad or, uh, you know, had an Arab or Muslim name, the reporting would have been totally different. 100 percent. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I agree with you. It would have been different because that would have fed into preconceptions and the narrative that already exists in the media. The media, as we know, is a reflection of the culture at large. So the culture at large polls will tell you this. The media, in a sense, will tell you this, that there is an inherent, you know, again, you could argue whether it's conscious, unconscious, how what percentage of it is. But the fact is that there is a bias in the media and that, and that I, I agree with you. If um, Stephen Paddock had been um, had been Muslim, um, had been had converted, whatever there, you know, President Trump would have um, tweeted. Uh, people would have reacted accordingly. Um, the, the ban against the people from Muslim majority countries would have been justified even more. I mean, it's like it's like this, you know, one small domino. Trump is waiting for one small domino. This was a big domino. And the fact that it didn't fall in that direction, in some sense, sorry to sound so cynical, didn't matter because the dominoes are always waiting to fall. They're always waiting to fall. And with this one, you know, various uh, pundits have talked about, well, you know, the media described him as a country music fan and a lone wolf. That's a euphemism for, you know, he's not part of a bigger system of, of terrorism and violence. And of course, that's bogus. It's really bogus. It's dubious. And what, what it, what it, one reason it is dubious is that, you know, people, whether they're Muslim or not, whether they, when they, um, um, succumb or whether they, you know, initiate a moment of terror, their religion shouldn't necessarily have anything to do with it if, if, if it didn't direct the terror, right? And, and so in this case, you know, the rush to kind of humanize him, that was the really kind of, you know, one of the gross parts of it, the rush to humanize him. Right. And, and the narrative that they typically use for non-Arab, non-Muslim, non-people of color when, when they do commit these acts of terror, Jonathan, seems to be using the narrative of the lone wolf or that they have mental illness. I mean, some sort of way to kind of distance themselves from it because they were pretty quick to, to kind of roll that analysis out on this guy, right? Uh, they, they were quick. And let, let's remind uh, listeners that this was the worst mass shooting in America. This yes. is this is the worst mass it shooting in America, worst. and it and it caused the NRA to step back to say, well, wait a minute, maybe we will support limited legislation, and of course that's a whole another program. Yeah, that's that's a whole another program. But yeah, and so um, there, there, there. In, in a sense, there was a rush to ex- to explain. You could reduce this. How did this happen? How could this happen to us? Right. How could one of our own right. do this to us? Right. I mean, I, I don't want to make it too simplistic, but people are pundits. And people in general, our society, are really spinning, trying to wrap their mind around how could this happen. And, you know, in fact, it happens quite a bit. It happens quite a bit. I mean, in the reporting I saw reminds me that most mass shootings, 50% of mass shootings in America are done by white men. That's right. Uh, more, I don't know what the percentage might be, 52, 53, 54, something like that. But the major, the vast majority, uh, the majority of sh- mass shootings are done by white people, right. white gunmen. And, and they are men. Right. That, that's, that's for the most part and a fact. And if you define mass shootings as four or more shootings, I think that's one way that they measure it. There are mass shootings literally every day in the United States. So this is a huge problem that we're facing in this country for, you know, that we're not one of these things we spoke about this before we started today, you know, that we're not ready and willing to face directly yet. But, uh, you know, if it was a brown person, for example, or a Muslim person, boy, then, you know, 
rally the troops, literally, probably, and we'd have a good narrative, we'd have a good explanation for this. Yeah, and, and I, I would add this. I mean, um, it's not just it's not just true for for Muslims and Arabs. It's true for for Black Americans, exactly. right? If there's violence, you know, um, um, at the hands, say, of Black Americans, then then right. you know the media comes out and and sensationalizes it. Absolutely. If it's against whites, then oh, that's a different that's a it's different portrayal. Yes. And that that is absolutely true. So what we're talking about here is not an aberration. It's part of a bigger pattern that happens to be accentuated. Uh, when it when you know there are Muslims or Arabs involved, or if there are whites involved, then it goes the other way. Well, that's why I think your book is more topical now, and I, I don't know how often that happens, Jonathan. When a book becomes more topical, you know, ten years after it's written, that's that's I guess good news and bad news. But it's it's something that really is is pretty amazing if you think about it. Well, I, I would I would argue that the situation in this country has gotten uh, worse. Uh, in terms of the perception of Arabs and Muslims, uh, the narrative has has certainly gotten worse. It's one reason why you know people talk about um, anti-Brexit um, uh, in London and in, in England, but and and people say, well, that foreshadowed the American election. Well, that same kind of anti-immigrant attitude. And when you say anti-immigrant, we're talking essentially about anti-people of color. Right. And it's not it's not just um, you know of course uh, people from the Middle East, people from Africa. Mm-hmm. Now a lot of them, as we know, happen to be Muslim. But even if they're not, it's it's an it's a it's a bias. Well, I mean, we have this wave of xenophobia. I mean, we have to admit it uh, right here in the United States. I don't know. I mean, how much, uh, maybe I should ask you this, how much of it is just we've had it all, all along. It was just latent. And how much of it is because of the election of Donald Trump and the rise of the white supremacists? That's a really good question, Jamal. It's a really good question. Um I, I wish I were a research scientist, you know, who could, who could parse that out and say X percentage is this, X percentage is that. I don't know, but I will say um, that, of course, there's a latent, um, uh, there was a latent, um, you know, racism, level of racism in this country that has, you know, has been there from the start, has absolutely been there from the start. And and one of the scary things is it's not limited to certain pockets. Uh, even in the liberal Bay Area, there's a lot of conservative views. You could even say racist views. Um, now, it might be minority um, uh, of people. It might be a small minority, but ne- nevertheless, under the Trump administration, there have been, you know, uh, white supremacist rallies in San Francisco. We just had mm-hmm. another one in Charlottesville, by the way, just this last weekend, which nobody really spent much time talking about. It was rather striking that Charlottesville, again, had a white supremacist pro-Nazi rally again. And we heard nothing from the administration. It really didn't get much coverage on the media and that's kind of curious, frightening, that it's becoming even normalized now that you could have a, a pro-Nazi white supremacist rally, torches, same things, you know, Jews will not replace us, same kind of saying, and nobody even paid attention to it. It's shocking. Well, I mean, the the, the it's, I'm really glad you're you're pointing that out. The word you're using, which is the most frightening word, is normalized. Yes, normalized. This is um, this was a you know an underbelly of the culture. You could find it maybe on a Reddit chat room, some in some corner. You could go to some distant part of America and find it. But uh, you know, you and I were talking before the the program, and you know, you heard essentially elements of that voiced publicly in the Midwest. Right. Um, but again, it's it's not necessarily limited to the Midwest. We can go to parts of California within you. 
you know, uh, a you know, short drive from here and find people who who share these views. I, fa- I found people like that even when I was a reporter at The Chronicle and I was doing political reporting and neighborhood reporting. You would find people all the time who would express, you know, essentially similar views. And when you would call them on it, I said, well, why do you feel that way? They wouldn't have an answer. This is this thing. So the views you're talking about, Jamal, like why do people feel that way? Sometimes they don't even know because it's hard to articulate. It's unconscious or it's... or. Well, there is, uh, of course, you know, when you are the leader or the so-called leader of the free world and when you are like the president of the free world, uh, like uh, President Trump, uh, you don't have to go that far. Uh, and I'm maybe moving a little bit towards the recent events in uh, Puerto Rico. And, and you watch the reaction from the president of the United States, how he reacted towards Texas, Florida versus Puerto Rico. There is an element of racism. I mean, this is what I keep hearing about, the way he refers to Puerto Ricans almost like they are, you know, under that term of the others. You know, they're, they're not American enough or, uh, you know... Uh, you know, maybe they're not white, maybe because they're maybe Latino. They're not maybe they're not even American. Yeah, and and millions of people watch that. I mean, here we are where you have massive events. We were talking earlier about the fires in, in, in California, right here in the Bay Area. And then these are the type of things that unite people. And even with this, he managed to divide people. Well, yeah, he managed to divide people, and and you know there are a lot of people who would say I probably agree with him that it's a very deliberate act on his part yeah. to obfuscate to um, um, you know uh, keep people um, from talking about the Russia investigation, which is so paramount to his administration, um, and in a sense to play to his base. I mean, it's no surprise that at the same time he's doing all this, he's criticizing NFL players for taking a knee and doing this, and it's no surprise that most, not most, but a lot of those players are people of color. Yeah. And and they're playing for owners who are gen- generally white, um, with with some few exceptions. But that plays into his, um, you know, his need to divide and also his need for attention and sen- sen- to sensationalize things. He doesn't know. He doesn't. He doesn't know the world. He has. He does not know the world, Jamal and Jesse. We all know that. Yeah. And and so if he doesn't know the world, how could he possibly lead? You know, as you're saying, he he can't be the leader of the free world. Well, he's he's really good at creating these boogeymen, right? And and again, you know, your your book, as being more topical now, is that he has redefined the ban from Muslim majority countries. I mean, that's back on the table. He just added North Korea and Venezuela to kind of you know, get away with not calling it a Muslim band, even though very, very few people were, who, I mean, who, who from North Korea, you know, comes to the United States. I mean, so they're on the travel, North Koreans are on the travel ban list, like, okay, big deal. But still, overwhelmingly Muslim majority countries are on this travel ban again that is that has been reinstituted uh, in this country. At a, at a time, you, you, you know, at a time when there were millions and millions of Muslim refugees right. internally displaced, externally repla- uh, displaced, and why, why, why so much, you know, uh, why, why is this such an issue now? 
Well, partly because of the United States, partly because of a previous re Republican administration, right. ill-advised wars, et cetera, et cetera. So this is one of the continu this talk about patterns. This is one of the continuing shameful patterns. Um, you know, during the Bush administration, we heard about the axis of evil. Well, that was another. You know, we'll throw in another country to to make it a non-Muslim axis. <laughs> right. But it was let's let's be. You know, we all know it was it was a Muslim axis. Of of course, it was. You're listening to the voice of Jonathan Curiel author and writer. He is the author of Al-America through America's Arab and Islamic, travels through America's Arab and Islamic roots. I want to talk a little bit about the book because it is timely. And I want to ask you when you decided to write this book and you, when you were writing it, what, 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 what was your goal? What, what was, well, I, you know, what, what were you trying to achieve? And and now looking, you know, at our time now, how does that fit in? Well, I'll, I'll say a couple things, and thank you for asking that question. Um, just as a way of background, I've traveled a lot in the Arab Muslim world on my own um, three months, a uh, long time ago, in Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq, just as an independent traveler, an independent journalist. I lived uh, in Pakistan. I lived in the city of Lahore for six months teaching there at a university. Uh, I have lots of Arab Muslim friends. Uh, and so, um, in a way, the book is, is my debt of gratitude. Mm. It really is. It's, it's a sense uh, because I found, um, you know, I found, I discovered so many things about the Arab Muslim world when, when I lived there and traveled there, and not only about the world, but about myself. Mm. And it's those two things that were really profoundly important to me. They, sh they, sh they have shaped my lives and my life in so many ways. And so um, I wanted to write the book because I had done a fellowship at Oxford University and I researched Muslim architecture. Um, and I influenced how Muslim how the influence of Muslim architecture on cathedral architecture and synagogue architecture. Wow. There's a huge uh, level of influence there. And I went to a city in Le Puy in France. Le Puy en Valais is the name. I went to London to a, you know, a quote-unquote more synagogue. And I found all these incredible connections. And I just want to summarize this as quickly as I can. When I was in Le Puy, I went to an 11th century cathedral. Uh, and, and Le Puy, for those of you who do not know, is a, is a city in um, France right by south of Lyon, close to the Pyrenees. It's where the crusade started. Right. It's where hatred started. That's right. these, these were priests and um, clerics who said, we are going to rid the Christian world of Muslims. Now, and we're going to build a cathedral that's going to show our empowerment and our, our power over these infidels. Now, if you go to that cathedral high on a hill, you'll, you'll see it's an, it's an incredible cathedral. You'll go to the doorway. It's about two stories tall. And you'll see on the rim of the doorway... Kufic writing. Oh my God. Arabic writing. Now, how did that get there at a time during the Crusades? Well, I'll tell you how it got there. It got there because at the very human level, um, France was doing a lot of cultural trade with Muslim Spain, and it went back and forth. Coins went back and forth. Goods went back and forth to the point where the cultures were influenced each other despite the Crusades. Despite the Crusades. That's a great story. And when I researched, and, and the same thing in a sense happened in the 19th century or so, when a lot of Jews around the world said, we want to um, do architecture that symbolizes the Middle East and the Abrahamic face, and they look to Islamic architecture. You go to some of these synagogues, they look like mosques, yeah. these minarets. And so these two things, again, this is, this is the pattern. It's a pattern of give and take. It's a pattern that cultures look to each other 
And so I said, well, this was 2005 and six. I thought, if this is the case in architecture, there have to be way more mm -hmm. um, um, cultural connections in the United States. I'm going to research that. And the more I researched it, the more I thought this deserves to be a book. And it deserves to be a book in the in the time-honored tradition of, of investigative work, research, new analysis of old documents, which is what I did. Which And one small example, if you go to New Orleans, um, you go to the quote-unquote French Quarter, it's not the French Quarter. It's not the French Quarter. Why? When I went there for the first time, I thought, wow, this reminds me so much of the Arab world. I don't know why. And then I did some research, and this is actually an, op an open secret. The Spanish uh, controlled uh, New Orleans for about 40 years. Right. And during that reign, the buildings, most a lot of the buildings burned down. They And they the buildings that went up were Spanish influenced buildings, but they weren't Spanish influenced buildings. They were Islamic Spanish influenced building because of sp of Muslim rule during Spain. Spain again, you know, Spain loved the architecture. Mm -hmm. They took it to America. Now, here's one small example. If you go to these, you know, Spanish influenced Muslim influenced buildings, you'll see courtyards. Courtyards right. are everywhere. They're a prominent feature. Where do those courtyards come from? They come from the Alhambra and other Muslim palaces. Where do those come from? They come from Saudi Arabia, from the the, right. the House of the Prophet. Courtyards are a special component of Islamic world of this Muslim architecture. And so you see, you can trace the quote unquote French Quarter right back to the Prophet Muhammad. So are you saying they should call it the Muslim Quarter? That's what I did. <laughs> no, actually, I'm not. I'm not. I'm saying they should call it the Muslim Spanish French Quarter. Well, this is, this is well. We're happy to report breaking news here on Arab Talk, Jamal. This is quite a controversy that that is being started. And by the way, we're at kpoo.com, eighty-nine point five FM, and we're in San Francisco. That's that's a big controversy that uh, Jonathan is stirring up right now. Well, I mean. You look around you, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, just the other day I was in, in Marin at the Civic Center and, and th this great building that uh, was built uh, how many years ago? Oh, uh, gosh. 1960s. Yeah, the 60s. 60s. <laughs> you know, domes and arches and, and, and certainly like for s someone who grew up in the Middle East and traveled a lot, that, that's the first thought that you, comes to my mind. Well, well, I actually say so your instincts are spot on because that was originally intended. I did the research for this for the Chronicle when I was a reporter there, um, and it's slightly in my book. That design was originally intended for Baghdad. Wow! Yeah, it was originally. You go to the you go to the research. Go to the documents. Uh, Frank Lord Wright is the architect, very right. famous architect. Yeah, yeah. He had originally designed that. F he was invited by the king of Iraq, then king, and he said, "I'm going to build this fantastical palace." Now. There, there were indirect, explicit, you know, implicit, I should say, references to the Muslim world. A minaret, you know, well, the design. Yeah, it looks like a mosque. No, no, it, yeah, look, it, yeah. it looks, it looks like, a like, a, like a mosque and it looks like a palace. And then you talked about the open courtyard, has that openness. And it, it kind of has that, middle, that yeah. flow with the environment. It's low, low level, you know, it's not a, a high natural rise. natural light. When you compare it to all civic centers, you know, uh, brick and mortar, this didn't look like brick and mortar to me. It, well, it's, it's homier, let's put it this way, than any other building that I've been into. Well, again, you're, you're, I mean, this is why I, you know, trust your instincts, right? I know you do. I know we all do. Like, there's, that was what, this is what I felt when I was in New Orleans. Like, no, wait a minute. There's something more here. And, you know, you're absolutely right, Jamal. Do you think we're lacking here at our in educational institutions? And I hate to say that because you have writers like yourself and journalists who basically dedicated the whole 
career in trying to educate people and bridging between the East and the West and the academic institutions. And it's very easy. I mean, what I love about this country, I mean, personally, I can walk into any town, any public library and read books. We have millions, if not, I don't know, hundreds of millions of books. We have the internet. We have everything. And yet, people remain blind. And I'm, I'm talking about the, the masses, you know, and we have to maybe leave, or leave our bubble, the maybe San Francisco Bay Area or college towns where we have UC Berkeley and State and Stanford. And then, like we were talking, all what you have to do is go 50 miles outside San Francisco and there is that whole xenophobia and the fear of the other and ignorance about cultures. What can we do? What, what else well, can I we do? We should read Jonathan's book first. That's my first. Well, he well, can't say it, but I'll say it. Well, I mean, oh, thank you. you should read Jonathan's <laughs> book that first. goes without saying, but what there, else is, there is a missing link. I don't know if it's at our... Uh, it starts at elementary schools, high schools, maybe. Uh, okay, I'm going to interrupt here because I because I think your your point again is spot on. That's a phrase I learned in England, by the way, when I lived there. But but here's here's one example. In a sense, books like mine can get ghettoized. Like, oh, that's a book that does this. And what really needs to happen is um, this sort of information being embedded, as it were, into textbooks. Right. And I'll give you one example. I wrote this book when my son was uh, eight. He was eight, eight, uh, seven and eight. And he was going to, uh, he was in middle school, and I got a copy of his, his history book. Uh-oh. Now, he's reading a history book, and it's talking about the beginnings of the state of California. And it's talking about how, oh, California um, was, was named, the name derives from the Spaniards who came along the coast and said, oh, look, California. And that's where it ends. And I said, no, wait a minute. Actually, one theory, and I think this is actually backed up with prominent research, yeah. is that Spaniards got that name, California, from a very important novel that existed during Spain um, in the 15th century. I believe. And in this novel, um, it imagines this island full of gold. And this island is run by a caliph, a caliph. Now, when they saw California, they thought it was an island and they they projected their then insight and culture onto California. They said, we're going to call it California. And it's actually... And so it actually derives from the from the very prominent Other, word caliph. Do. So how many people know that? That's the well. That's the thing. So this book stopped short of that. It said he, we're going to stop with the Spaniards, but it doesn't stop with the Spaniards. You actually need to go back farther, exactly. way back. And this this is the pattern again. One of the patterns I found in the research of my book. All these disconnections that happen that um, essentially prevent people from understanding quote unquote the truth. Well, it's a it's typical, I think, Jonathan to. A historicize things, right? It's like this is maybe part of our 24-hour news cycle. Things are always new without historical context, right? And you've just given a great example. I mean, people don't think twice about the question of, well, where does the word, where does the word California come from? And just even a little bit of analysis would open up another world for you, right? Oh, it's, 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 it's incredible, which is, which is why in my book I try to say it's not just one thing or another. It's the language we use. Again, it's the music we listen to. It's famous people we, we, who's, who we identify with who in turn, you know, have been influenced by the Arab Muslim world. Now, Jonathan, where can people get your book? 
Uh, they can email me directly. <laughs> they can find me on the internet, but really, they, they, it's on Amazon. It's in a lot of libraries. I'm happy to say uh, it's it's been checked out a lot. Um, I know, um, uh, and so yeah, and and I'm, I'm hoping, I'm really hoping. Uh, to do an animation from this, yeah. I'm, I'm actually going to pay someone to animate it because I've been trying to animate it for ten years. I thought I've thought about animating it, much to my chagrin, I have not. Where, the, the, book, your... the book again is Al America: Travels Through America's Arab and Islamic Roots by Jonathan Curiel. We want you all to get one. Yeah, you need to get this book. I mean, if you're if you're listening to Arab Talk, you're watching us on Facebook Live. This is one of those uh, must-reads, Jamal. And and I, I will say that it was there. An edition came out in Arabic. Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, but published in Beirut uh, by a Beirut yeah. publisher. Uh, there are a few copies I saw in Amsterdam. There are a couple of copies on the, in Amsterdam, uh, and nice. I, I have a copy at home. So uh, yeah, I, I was really proud of that fact. That's really great. One thing before we let you go, Jonathan, what's your website that people can go and check out your work? Uh, they can go to jonathancurriel.com. Okay, yeah. jonathancurriel.com. And I want to I really want to thank you for inviting me on your show. Thank you so much. Anytime, Jonathan. Uh, this is a great book. You are a great writer and, of course, a local author, which we like to promote right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. You've been listening to the voice of Jonathan Curiel. Go out there and buy his book. Uh, his website is jonathancurriel.com. Uh, you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. We're going to take a short musical break. And then for those who are following us on Facebook Live, you can continue to listen to us if you are in the San Francisco Bay Area on 89.5 FM or on kpoo.com if you are far away. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back to Arab Talk on KPOO in San Francisco, 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Justin Jamal. I want to throw something back at you, Jamal, as long as we're talking about this. I mean, the shooter in, in Las Vegas, the domestic terrorist, was, an, was, a, was a white guy, older white guy. But one thing that didn't make the news that I thought was kind of interesting, maybe you could comment on that, is that there was a, a bombing attack at an airport in Nashville uh, a couple of days ago, and it didn't make the news. Like, when when does a bombing attempt at an airport not make the news anymore? I mean, I mean, yeah, come I, on. it's not Nashville. It's Asheville's reg- regional oh, airport. Asheville, sorry, in in North uh, Carolina. I mean, this is the story that we never heard about. The guy got uh, arrested. They've had a video showing the man walking through the front doors wearing black clothing and a black cap. He was carrying a bag, leaves the bag. Of course, thank God that they have, we know at least uh, at all these airports, you have uh, these uh, cameras. And then the investigators, they go, they pick up, you know, I guess I would assume that would be Homeland Security and maybe NTSA. They get the bag. What do they find? They find in the bag uh, what they refer to as AN-FO, ammonium nitrate fuel oil. The name alone, you know. It's a bomb, Jamal. It's a scary explosive. And this is, this is uh, you know, this is something like most terrorists, I guess, um, they use. to. Uh, it's easy to, uh, to ignite it uh, either by fr- flames or, or uh, remotely. 
The bag also had nails, ball bearings, and a bunch of other things. If this wasn't uh, found, it would have created probably another massive but, but, uh, killing. But you're not answering my question, Jamal. Why is it that that did not get any press? Well, that's why I said I bet most people never heard about it. What's the guy's name? And uh, and just like uh, his name is Michael Christopher Estes. Well, and he's not a Muslim. He's not an immigrant. He's not Mexican. He's not Arab. I mean, I mean, He's not you know, we, we, we're telling the story over and over again. But if you didn't dig hard or if you didn't live in that area and it was a local story, and if his name was Muhammad, as again, I use this <laughs> name, it could be Jamal for what it could be Ahmed, it could be Ali, it could be whatever. But had his name been uh, Muhammad, this would have been headline news. Number one. We would have uh, another Muslim a, a major manhunt, uh, the FBI descending on mosques, uh, the media trying to cook and concoct different stories. This story got was invisible. Yeah, it got buried. And that's, that, that segues really well with what we spoke about with Jonathan about because that's exactly right. If it doesn't fit into the narrative of the other, the Muslim, the, the Arab, the, the terrorist, whatever, and something really horrific happens like that, people either don't understand it, like they're doing with the guy in Las Vegas. Oh, and by the way, I should have said that Trump did not tweet he about it. He, and he didn't tweet? Uh, he tweets about almost anything. If you look him in the wrong way, he'll tweet about you. Here is someone who wanted to blow up an airport. He did not even mention well, but what is he going to do? There's no ban. He's not going to ban Michael Christian Estes community from the, you know, from traveling. It doesn't fit into the xenophobic narrative that we have right now, Jamal. So when 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 you have these guys like Dylan Roof, like Stephen Paddock, like Michael Estes and they all have that similar kind of profile, are they're not Muslim, they're not African American, they're not people of color who are committing these acts of terror, they don't know what to do. No, and then I was reading another story, sorry to stay on the same topic, we've been talking about it for the past two weeks, and I was so glad to have Jonathan Curiel, a well-known author and writer who focused, uh, like I said, a lot, uh, many years of his uh, career on Islam and Islamophobia and trying to educate people about the connection between uh, Islam and the connection to, to the to America and, and, and the Western world, uh, you know, this story doesn't go away. I was it like, I was uh, reading another story, uh, which I guess it aired on ABC News. I just read the print and the headlines of it. Uh, it's showing, uh, you know, Stephen uh, Paddock posing with a friend. It says, "Friend of Vegas shooter, I want to solve this," and then and then. You know, his friend talking about how a great person he was and very friendly and helpful and humanizing him. And again, it goes to like I say to myself, if I had a dime for every time I've been called a terrorist or someone who supported terrorism because of my name, you could retire origin or political views. I'll be a millionaire. Many but times, yeah. Americans seems, seem to have a hard time calling this 
can I say that piece of turd, a terrorist, even after shooting more than 400 people. He was such a nice and, guy, Jamal. And, Come and on. that's why, like I said, if in any of these instances at the airport or in Las Vegas, a different name, a different face, different eth ethnicity, this would have been a whole different coverage. And the media fans the flames when the alleged, when the suspects are, you know, of Middle Eastern background or have a Muslim name versus when they are just an ordinary person and they are in denial. You're absolutely right, Jamal. And, and just to show you how outrageous this is, they're still floating around on the Internet the idea that Stephen Paddock was an ISIS plant. They're still saying that. They just can't believe. They just can't believe that an old white guy would be a mass murderer and a domestic terrorist. They, they, people are having a hard time understanding that this is part of the society that we live in. It's not the other. We've talked about this week after week, Jamal. The greatest number of mass murders, the greatest number of crimes, armed robberies, things like that, are not committed by people of color are not committed by immigrants, are not committed by refugees. They just don't. I mean, we could talk about the Dreamers, for example. The Dreamers are the 800,000 you know, DACA recipients that have been in this country under the, 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 the DACA plan that Barack Obama instituted. They have the lowest incidence of uh, engagement with the criminal justice community of any other, any other ethnic group in the United States. They have the highest employment rate. They have the highest education uh, uh, rates, the lowest criminal justice, and yet they're being demonized. And by the way, just to like riff on Doc a little bit, all this excitement that they're going to pass something and something's going to get done and they're going to protect them, it's not happening. The, these dreamers are going to get um, unfortunately screwed by you know what's happening in Washington, D.C. right now. Well, uh, can we just riff on that a little bit more? Sure. Uh, you know, I don't believe Donald Trump knew that Puerto Ricans were Americans. I don't uh, think he knew that. Uh, I'm not sure about this, but he definitely showed disdain. And disrespect. And disrespect for Puerto Ricans. For someone having, uh, I mean, he's from New York. From he's from the Bronx. No, he's from Queens. Oh, he's from Queens. He's okay. from Queens originally. And now uh, I'm recently lived in Manhattan where you have a large number of uh, Puerto Rican population uh, living in, in uh, New York. What did he think, man? And basically he, and, and this is my perspective. Yeah. It had nothing to do with them being Puerto Ricans had nothing to do with with anything except the color of their skin. Uh, I, well, think, I think you're right. I think if you're brown, if you're black, if you are not white, you know, you are going to be categorized differently. You're going to be, he's going to relate to you in a different manner. Do you think he'll throw paper towels at us too someday, Jamal? I mean, I have to, I mean, I still can't get over the, that kind of grotesque disrespect that he showed Puerto Ricans 
who still today... Well, he basically said they don't want to help themselves. Here, they, they were devastated by one of the worst hurricanes we've had, you know, in centuries. And then he said, well, you know, we try to help them, but they don't want to help themselves. And you know what it, like, in other words, the reference, yeah. they're lazy. They don't want to do the work themselves. And, and, and actually, he said today that, well, we can't be helping them forever. I mean, that was another comment he, he tweeted about, about Puerto Rico today. The other thing about Puerto Rico, Jamal, that we have to, you know, because we're talking about all these tragedies, I mean, you know, it's still over 80% of the island still does not have electricity. Over 80% of the island does not have access to any kind of cell service, access to water, access to electricity. Still the majority of hospitals and clinics are not functioning, and he has the audacity, and they're still finding more dead, and he has the audacity to say, we're not going to be there for you forever. The other thing, of course, I'm, uh, I'm concerned about and should make everyone concerned uh, about is the lack of preparedness that uh, we've witnessed. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't know how... how uh, we're going to be able to prepare for even worse things. But even right here in, San Fran in the San Francisco Bay Area, these, of course, the devastating fires and nothing, uh, you know, had been done aside even even like the first 24 hours. No, from, I agree. From uh, stopping the path of the fires or Or just letting people know. Yeah, it's just like 24 hours and then after 24 hours, all the devastation, boom, 20,000 people are homeless and you have 24 people now died. The fires are still burning. Barely contained. Puerto Rico, I don't know how many years it's going to to take them to recover, if, Florida, yeah. Texas, and of course, this is a whole topic, the global warming that we are in denial or well, this whole... Only uh, some people are some in people denial are about in it. Denial I, about yeah. and, and just how, uh, you know, things have been changing and, and because of also the populations. I mean, w here we are, of course, in San Francisco Bay Area. We are people build right on the water, uh, people uh, build in the middle of forests. That's true, unfortunately. I mean, this is part of the reality. It's the reality. And then so what measures uh, can can we take in the future? And, and by the way, I, I, I learned uh, yesterday that at least uh, this is, I don't know if this has been confirmed, but this whole fire was created because of uh, a PG&E uh, I guess tower fell and ignited that's the fires. That's one theory. Right, because that's one of the, theory. Because of the winds that it knocked yeah, down a and, tower. And, yeah. and this is terrible, but I remember something similar that also because of the uh, PGE. Oh, the in, gas lines. Gas yeah. lines in San Mateo. So that's right. who is going to be held responsible? That's the question. Well, on that note, we want to thank you for joining us today. You can send us comments to ArabTalk at KPOO.com. Follow us on Twitter at Arab Talk. Follow us on Facebook at Jamal Dijani 2. And uh, we'll see you next week.